I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Jeremiah. For you that may be new and maybe are joining us live stream, I've been actually doing a series of messages uh, over this a course of time from the book of Jeremiah. We're actually in chapter 27. Is that amazing? We're actually over halfway through this book. There's 52 chapters. People say, you're going to preach it all? I go, hey, it all needs to be said, right? Uh, there's good stuff in this book. I, you know, in 40 years as a pastor, I'd never preached from Jeremiah. Now I'm, I'm just stuck in the book. But we will, we're going by chapter by chapter. I've entitled this sermon, Living in Confusing Times. How many know that uh, a lot of times we're confused by what's happening? And so we try to explain it in a number of different ways. We can talk about all these numbers of conspiracies that are going on. I actually believe there is a conspiracy, and it's a big one. And it's really perpetrated by a spiritual foe called Satan, and he's blinded the minds of our society, and so that's the conspiracy that I believe is occurring, and it's been happening for a long time now, okay? So all the other stuff I'm not so sure about, but that one I am sure about, because the Bible alliterates, states it very you know, clearly, it's stated. But not only are we living in confusing times, sometimes we start living in a wrong paradigm. What do I mean by that? Well, simply put, as Christians, many times we can get frustrated. Because I want to talk today about how do we live under unpopular political leadership? In other words, how are we supposed to respect people in authority when they do things that we don't respect? Isn't that a great question? How are we supposed to relate to them? And I think that doesn't matter what side of the fence you're on, we're always changing sides because we no sooner get get one side and we are upset and we get rid of that side and we embrace another side. Some of you are saying, I'm not even picking on any sides, but we end up living underneath people who are affecting and influencing our lives and many times in a negative way. And it's frustrating. Anybody relate to that? Okay, and some people get upset, they get angry. But as a Christian, what should my response be? Because, you know, I can understand it when non-believers get angry and upset and they, they carry on about it. But as a Christian, what should be a godly person's response to that kind of a thing in our life. So where do we look for answers? Here's a better question. When society, as we know it, begins to falter. As a matter of fact, I was actually sharing this Tuesday night in the prayer meeting. It's the psalmist in Psalm 11 speaks of an hour when the wicked bend their bows and they set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed... What can the righteous do? And now those foundations there are actually the moral fiber and values of a people. So when you see the world as we know it falling apart, it causes us to get uptight. And it should. But the simple answer for us is to take refuge in the Lord. There's an answer there. We should flee to God for that answer. As a matter of fact, it says we have to remember whose world this really is. It belongs to God. Listen to what it says in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 11. We'll get to Jeremiah, but I'm just introducing the thought here. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on the earth. His eyes examine them. The wicked, the righteous. God is looking. And many times it seems like God is not doing anything, right? That's what frustrates people. Like, come on, let's, let's have something happen. My point is simply this. God is working. He's always working. But he may do things that you and I may not like. And that's the part I want you to hear today. I think 
I said to the first service people, hang on to your pews. I'm, yes, that's a good thing to do. Very good. Appreciate that, David. He's grabbing a pew right now. But we'll get into it. In Jeremiah chapter 27, we're about to discover who is really behind the unpopular political leaders. Who is behind them? Some of you say, well, it's got to be Satan, Pastor. No, I don't think so. As a matter of fact, we're going to look at it here. It's going to be very clear that God is in charge of who's in, in, in power. Okay. What we need to learn and will help us understand is how we need to respond to even the most oppressive governments. And when you study scripture, you'll find out that Israelites were in captivity in Egypt. They lived under slave conditions. I mean, you can keep reading through scripture. There's a lot of oppressive governments in the Bible. As a matter of fact, we're going to look at one today because the Is uh, Judah is about to be taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, who develops a world empire. And as we're about to discover, God's the one that set it up. And there's a reason for it. And that's what I want us to understand. Many times, I would say often, oppressive governments are God's tools of chastisement. What does that mean? God uses them to discipline us. Moment, these are moments that you should cause us to consider and pause. When I look at Canada today, there's a lot of things as a nation we're doing wrong. And God is going to judge our country if we don't get it right. And you say, well, yeah, but I don't agree with what these things are happening, Pastor. How come I'm going to experience difficulty? Well, we're all in the same boat. That's the problem. And so how do we help the boat navigate to a better direction than where it's at today? And how should we go about doing that? So if you know, the question I'm, I raise is, while we're waiting for God to do something, what should our response be? Do we revolt, rebel, complain, criticize? Do we comply? Or is there maybe a different response that's being called for? You know, this is a time that we should humble ourselves and cause ourselves to stop and look, stop looking for human solutions. I think that's the problem. We're, you know, we'll just get this other party in or this other person in, they'll fix the problems. But I think what God is calling us to do is to surrender our lives anew to God. It starts there. You see, if the church was what the church ought to be, it would have a greater influence on the culture in which we're living. How many say that's probably true? Isn't that, isn't that kind of where it starts with us? I would say the greatest need in Canada today is for a spiritual awakening. And it starts with you and me. If you and I come spiritually alive it begins to impact the people around us. You know, we're not just talking about political leaders. I'm talking about all kinds of leaders. I'm talking about spiritual leaders. I'm talking about parents in the home. We have to awaken. We, we, we set the tone of our, our, our countries, our institutions, our families are all affected by how we as leaders are responding or not responding to God. What we see here is God is the one who is really ultimately in charge of our world. He appoints whoever he desires to rule over people. As a matter of fact, Walter Brueggemann in his commentary on Jeremiah says, Yahweh, that's the name of God, may assign power to anyone he chooses. He does not need to give an explanation or justification. He does not need to give accounts to nations. In other words, you and I have no business questioning what God's doing. God has every business in the world to question what we're doing. There's the problem. You know, sometimes we think we're God. 
You know, it's like God has to give an answer to me. No, he doesn't. As a matter of fact, when Job went through all those trials, God never gave him an answer why he took him through them. God does not owe us an answer, folks. Now, sometimes in his mercy and grace, he gives us an answer. That's nice. I like that. But he doesn't always do that, does he? Uh, so we are called upon in our lives to give an account to God. And I'm going to say this right now, that every leader, political, spiritual, family, business, leader, will give an account to God for their actions. Every person will give an account of God for their actions. So how do we respond to an unpopular, and I'll pick on the political leader because we're going to look at King Nebuchadnezzar, and he's a political leader. Or how do we respond to people we don't agree with, those who are in authority? What should be our response? And we're going to look at three things we need to consider when we disagree with those in authority over us. Number one, God is sovereign, which means God's in control. He's in control over all nations at all times. He never stops being in control. It's not like God went to sleep and somebody slipped in there. You know what I mean? That's not what's going on here. So when we speak of God's sovereignty, that's what we're saying. He's in control of the events. He's allowing certain things to happen, and many times they're painful in order to get our attention. And that's true on an individual level, corporate level, national level. Here in Jeremiah 27, God tells Jeremiah, I'm going to have you develop certain props, okay? Uh, to dramatize the message that he's going to speak, not just to the Jewish people, but to many nations in the Middle East. And I want to go back and remind us of Jeremiah's calling from God. Listen to what it says in chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Actually, we could apply that to all of us. Before you were designed, God says, I knew you. As a matter of fact, he said to Jeremiah, before you were born, I set you apart. I set you apart and appointed you as a prophet to the nations, plural. So it's not just, God is not just the God of Israel, Judah. God is the God of Canada and Russia and Ukraine and all the nations on the planet. God is the God of all nations. We need to understand that. He says there, so what's the message that Jeremiah is about to deliver in this book? And here's what he says in verse 10. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot, tear down, destroy, and overthrow, to build and to plant. Now, how many are beginning to see that if we will not listen to God, God will get our attention by taking us down? That's what's gonna happen. Because if God is not satisfied with what's going on in our life, he'll start over again. And so if, we're, if we continue to rebel against him as an individual or as a nation, God says, I will destroy it. And then I will start over again. And if you study history very carefully, it's a story of nations rising and falling. How many notice that? And some of them have risen and they've fallen and then they've come back up again. God's the one that's doing it. And we need to understand that. So in our personal lives, if we're, if we're just ignoring God, let me tell you something. He's going to take you out. And I don't know if you've ever had that experience in your life where you were motoring along and all of a sudden, you know, God decides, I'm going to reduce some things in your life. I'm going to, I'm going to level you. I'm going to cut you down to size. You've, you're full of yourself. And then I will start rebuilding you. And if you've never gone through that process, let me explain it to you. It's not fun. It's very painful. I've gone through it. I've gone through it not just uh, over, you know, days or weeks. I've gone through months and years of this stuff. And I can explain from experience that in hindsight, looking back, you go, best thing that ever happened to me. When you're going through it, it's the worst thing that's ever happened to you. 
Anybody relate to this? Absolutely. As you get old, you'll have these experiences. You know, you'll, you'll start figuring it out. So let's pick up the story here in chapter one. Early in the reign of Zedekiah, he's the last king now, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is what the Lord said to me. Make a yoke out of straps and crossbars and put it on your neck. Okay, so he's putting this, he's, 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 he's dramatizing the sermon. You can see him walking around with a yoke. I mean, how many know, hey, Jeremiah, what's the yoke? You know, and then he starts telling them. It's, it's, it's to get people's attention, you know. He's getting their interest. Verse three, send words to the kings of Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre, Sidon, and through, the en- and through the envoys who have come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, king of Judah. So a bunch of nations now, they're in a political conference, Jeremiah shows up with this yoke and he starts telling these envoys from these other nations, this isn't just to uh, our nation, it applies to all of you guys. This is an applicable word to the Middle East. Give them a message from their masters and say, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, tell this to your masters. With my great power and outstretched arms, I made the earth. In other words, I don't care who you guys think you are. I don't care who you think you're worshiping. I am the God of the entire world. I made the earth and its people, the animals that are on it, and I will give it to anyone I please. Okay, God says, I choose who's gonna be the leader. God's choice. So, we've looked at uh, this yoke. Tremper Longman says, a yoke symbolizes submission and control. Just like an animal is yoked in order to harness its energies for its owner, so according to Jeremiah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is going to make the nation submit and bring them under his control. Uh, Walter Brueggemann says the yoke is really the, has been commanded by God. It's not, it's, not, it's not Nebuchadnezzar that's doing this. See, they think it is. The yoke of Babylon is worn, however, not at the behest or the, the desire of Nebuchadnezzar, but at the command of God. In other words, God put it on the heart of this king to do this, but it's God that's behind it. It's very powerful. So this isn't just, oh, a ruthless leader that wants to take over the world. Where's this coming from? God himself is doing this. Now, I like what Philip Rikens, he kind of gives us a sense of the context of the political realities of that hour. And I like the way he says it. He says here, the city was bustling with diplomats in those days, special envoys from Edom, Moab, uh, Ammon, Tyre, Sidon, had all gathered in Jerusalem for a summit meeting. They were having talks to form a military coalition coalition, and throw off the yoke of the Babylonian oppression because the Babylonians had already, you know, taken some of their main leaders away. So they were subjugated to them. As a matter of fact, back in 597 BC, the Babylonians had downsized Jerusalem, carried much plunder, many people back to Babylon. They'd set up Zedekiah as a puppet king of Judah. But at the time this chapter was written in 594, that's five years later, Nebuchadnezzar seems very vulnerable. As a matter of fact, Donald Wiseman says, the Babylonian chronicles record that during this period, he had to repel an attack by an enemy, this is Nebuchadnezzar, put down a revolt among his own people, and launch a military campaign against the Syrians. So in other words, it looked like a good time to you know, get rid of Nebuchadnezzar, right? He's got his own difficulties. And so Riken goes on to say, so with King Zedekiah as their ringleader, the downtrodden nations of the Middle East gathered in Jerusalem to plot the downfall of Babylon. All the political analysis were in favor of armed resistance. Had the ambassadors been interviewed on late night television, they would have pointed out 
that Nebuchadnezzar was nearly a thousand miles away and that he had enough headache going on in his own neck of the woods to deal with. It was a perfect time for a revolution or a revolt. There was only one problem. They didn't stop to ask what God thought. You know, and that's a big deal because a lot of people today, we, we make decisions and we haven't stopped to think about what did God have to say about this? Is God in on this? How many know when you're walking with God, this is what I love about the will of God, all the resources come to you. You can't make these things happen. They're just coming your way. But when you're doing your own thing, it can be so frustrating. Nothing is happening right. It's because you're busy trying to fulfill your agenda. And sometimes as Christians, we're begging God to fulfill our plan. God doesn't feel obligated to do it. How's that? He feels only obligated to do his plan. And so maybe in 2023, what we should be doing is aligning ourselves to get in step with God. That's what we should be doing. Let me move to the second idea here is that God appoints leaders over nations and that the leaders are accountable to God. Notice what it says here. You know, I think a lot of leaders today act as if they're totally unaccountable to anyone. That's true. The reality is that even the most autocratic leaders over powerful nations are accountable to God. Even in a democratic society, leaders ought to be accountable, according to a democracy, to the people. But how many know they rarely are? Have we figured that out yet? They usually show up and make things like just before election, they want to be elected. Then they start looking like they're listening. Then they make promises. Most of the time, they don't deliver. Right? Isn't that kind of the way it's worked? Well, that's what I've been noticing. I've been around for a few years. Uh, So... I'm saying all of this that the reality is I don't care who the person is in charge. They're accountable to God. And there's a day of reckoning for every leader. That's true for me too. It's true for all of us. As a parent, there's a day of reckoning. Look at verse six. Now I give all of your countries into the hands of my servant Nebuchadnezzar. I just love that line. Nebuchadnezzar was ruthless, didn't know God You know, he was doing his own thing. He was autocratic. He was trying to carve out a world empire. God goes, he's my servant. I'm gonna use him. How is he gonna use Nebuchadnezzar? I'm gonna discipline all these other nations. Remember back to the messaging, I'm gonna tear down nations in order to repair them. In other words, if if your life and my life is out out of order, God will tear it apart. God will bring it down. God will humble you. I can guarantee you. He will do that to nations. He will do that to cities. He will do that to families. He will do that to individuals. You need to know that about God. Why is he prepared to do that? So he can build it back up. He wants to restore. He wants it to be set on the right foundations. He wants us to live the right kind of a life. That's the mercy of God. We don't see it as the mercy of God. All we can think about is, man, I'm being disciplined by God. This hurts. Yeah, but it's the mercy of God so that you and I don't spend eternity apart from God. That's a great mercy, folks. When you consider eternity versus time, what's, a little, what's 70, 80, 90 years of life compared to eternity? Yeah, think of it in that way. You know, we need to get our, 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 our minds wrapped around that. Then he says this, this is a limitation. All the nations are gonna serve him and his son and his grandson. There's a limitation. Three generations. Jeremiah later on says they're gonna be serving these guys for 70 years until the time for his land comes, and then many nations and great kings will subjugate him. In other words, God said, I'm gonna use you, 
And then afterwards, and, and Isaiah, another prophet, says to uh, Babylon, because you, you got carried away, you became abusive and oppressive, you went way beyond what I wanted, it's your turn now to re reap everything you sowed. So the sowing and reaping principle kicks into effect into Babylon, and they get taken out by the Persians. We know that historically. Now Jeremiah is going to begin to spell out consequences for defiance and disobedience to God's message in verse 8. If, however, any nation or kingdom will not serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, or bow its neck under his yoke, I'm going to punish that nation with the sword, famine, plague, declares the Lord, until I destroy it by his hand. In other words, he's my instrument to deal with your bad behavior. I'm going to use this instrument. Verse 9, so do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your interpreter of dreams, your mediums, your sorcerers who tell you you will not serve the king of Babylon. Notice that long list of people that are deviating even from what God approves. Why is he doing that? Because he's not just speaking to Judah, he's speaking to all the nations. They're, these people are listening to a lot of false people. And he said, don't even listen to your prophets who are saying other than what I've just said. So now we see there's a conflict in the messaging. And I believe today we're seeing the same thing in Canada and the United States and around the world. Even in the church, we get conflicting messages. Isn't that true? But we're gonna talk about how to straighten that out. Okay, they prophesy lies to you that will only serve to remove you far from your lands and I will banish you and you will perish. In other words, if you resist, you will be exiled. But if any nation will bow its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will let that nation remain in its own land to live in it, to till it. In other words, to continue to live life, to live there, declares the Lord. Robert Davidson explains the challenge of communicating this message to a world that wants to manage their own destiny. And, I, and it's, it's not just our nation. Sometimes it's us. We're trying to manage our own destiny itself. We're trying to do our own thing. He says this, uh, Jeremiah's attitude in this situation would hardly increase his popularity. This is not a message they wanted to hear. Matter of fact, I think I preached a sermon a little while ago called Don't Shoot the Messenger, right? Remember that sermon? You know, sometimes you're telling people things they don't want to hear. Yeah, you can, you can try to destroy the messenger, but you need to hear that. The appeal of freedom and patriotism has always been emotionally powerful, not least when it's backed by the religious establishment. So if you can get the church to agree with the government, that's a very powerful combination. Those who oppose it are liable to be dismissed as defeatist or hounded as traitors. So we know in the story, because Jeremiah is preaching to surrender to the Babylonians, he's considered a traitor. You, you realize that, right? That's problematic. But actually, he's telling them the truth. He's telling them God's message. He's trying to explain to them, Babylon is God's instrument to discipline you. You need to repent. It's a message of repentance. Uh, but, you know, does this mean that the church should be silent when the government violates healthy moral values that are in the best interests of a nation? What do you think? Of course not. The voice of disagreement needs to be heard in order to curb destructive and unhealthy laws. Davison goes on to say it's a curious fact that right down to the present day, no government ever objects to a church who makes pronouncements which supports its policies, but let voices be raised from within the church challenging and criticizing the policies of the government, then this is attacked as illegitimate interference in politics. Well, I'm going to just say something. You and I have to speak the word of the Lord and the word of truth. 
We are living today in a culture of death. There are things that we need to speak to and say these things are unhealthy and they're destroying our country. There's nothing wrong with saying those things. It's the tone and the way we go about doing it that creates the problems. We'll talk about that. So, policies like the destruction of life based upon utilitarian ethics ought to be called out as inherently evil and destructive as a guiding principle in society. So you say, well, what do you mean by uh, utilitarian, Pastor? What is it? What's utilitarian ethics? Well, let me, Nyher and Sandin explain it this way. The ethical or right action is the one that results in the greatest good for the greatest number. So that's utilitarian ethics. Now, I don't know if you were in school and they make you do these exercises. You know, uh, 100 people need to be saved on this train, but you know there's a bridge over here. But the bridge, if you drop it down, it's going to kill your, 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 your grandmother and your immediate family. What are you going to do? You mean, it's, it's those kind of moral dilemmas that are being presented to young people today. It creates a lot of angst inside of people, right? And so the idea is that if you're, the, the, the utilitarian ethics says you do the greatest good by helping the greatest amount of people. He goes on to say rightness or wrongness is then determined by totaling the positive and negative outcomes of an action. And the one that produces the highest score of positives over negatives is the most ethical or right thing to do. Now, that's not necessarily biblical. But this is where our culture is today. We are developing a utilitarian ethic. We need to understand it. So what people are, you know, this is what's going to start happening. We're going to, because now we've embraced euthanasia as a legal, moral, a, a law. It's not moral, but it's law. Eventually, people are going to say, you know, it's very costly to have people, you know, living at the very end of their life. So we'll just, you know, we'll choose to allow these people to be euthanasianized so we don't have the expense of the high cost of, see, you can see where this is all going to go. I'm just explaining how this is how our society thinks right now. But let me ask you a question. Uh, does this justify, does this model basically is teaching that the, the ends justify the means? And that's problematic because that's not the case. You see, that's in our human understanding. We go, well, what do you expect, Pastor? We've got to make decisions from our human minds. But listen to what Scripture teaches us. And this is the problem. When you take God out of the equation, then you're left to human reason. That's all you have left. But listen to what Proverbs teaches us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and what? Lean not on your own understanding and all your ways submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Another translation says smooth. In other words, God says, I'll make a way. I'll make a way. That's what we need to understand. So God is in the business of making ways. As a matter of fact, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and Shun or avoid evil. So we have to make a decision. We have to do the right thing. I'm going to make a statement now. It's very important. Only by using the right means can you get to the right ends. A lot of people today are using the wrong means, justifying it because they're seeing that that means they think will take them to the right ends, but it never gets them there. That's human thinking. Divine I believe the good thinking, biblical thinking is I need to always use the right means. And if I keep using the right means, no matter if, I, even if it costs me personally, even if I have to suffer in the process, I'm gonna do the right thing because in the long term, it's what God wants done. He will be glorified and much good will come from it. 
We need to understand that. Now, Vernon Jensen says this, because I, I think when we try to make these decisions regarding life and death or the greatest good, they become very subjective, that means they're internal, and we start playing God. When human beings start playing God, we make a lot of mistakes. How many say that's true? When human beings start playing God, we're gonna make bad decisions. Vernon Jensen says, legislative bodies often claim that the voice of the people is the voice of God, an echo rephrasing of the old claim that the voice of the king or the voice of the emperor is the voice of God or the voice of heaven. Such claims are not merely exuberant expressions of democratic arrogance, but statements that the voice of the majority of the people's representatives freely elected and assembled is as close to the universal voice of God as humans can get. And the answer is, I don't think so. Now, what he's basically saying is just because the majority believe something is right and they create laws doesn't mean the law is right. We need to have a higher standard than that. We need to go back to the word of God. And that's where it all comes down to. Because, you know, a lot of people, you know, are, are well, we'll say it this way. I don't think we can uh, settle moral questions by settling legal questions, Vernon Jensen says. The law may permit immoral behavior and may require immoral behavior. And in those cases, we have to choose to do the right thing. So what I'm basically saying is, when should Christians object? When should we say, this isn't right? Well, we can object to a lot of things. And I look at it this way, life has many hills to die on. But I think we have to figure out which one is the correct one to die on. And the correct one is when we get to places where it's affecting my relationship directly with God. When I'm forbidden to worship God, that's problematic. Then I need to address that in my life. But let me move on to the last thing uh, we need to consider here, is how we as God's people need to respond. Because I think this is important. I think a lot of Christians are so frustrated, it moves over into anger, and eventually we're starting to behave like the non-Christian people who don't like what's happening, okay? So what makes us distinctly different? How are we salt and light? How should we approach addressing our society's evils? It's a great question, and I think we're all faced with it. So let's take a look at what Jeremiah says to the king and the people of Judah. I think we're gonna glean some understanding. I think, first of all, there's a warning against listening to the wrong message. Look at verse 12. I gave the same message to Zedekiah, king of Judah. I said, bow your neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, serve him and his people, and you will live. Why will you and your people die by the sword, famine, and plague with which the Lord has threatened any nation that will not serve the king of Babylon? Do not listen to the words of the prophets who say to you, you will not serve the king of Babylon, for they are prophesying lies to you. Hmm. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. They're prophesying lies in my name. Therefore, I will banish you, and you will perish, both you and the prophets who prophesy lies to you. So here's the question. You got different people speaking in the name of God from the Bible, conflicting messages. Is that happening today? All the time. So then you go, well, how am I supposed to know which is God's message? Isn't that a great question? I'm gonna give you an answer. If you and I, we have a responsibility on the hearing side, not just, I have a responsibility on the speaking side, but you have a responsibility on the hearing side to make sure that what is being said is biblical. So the only way you can decide if this is biblical, because everybody's speaking from the Bible, is that you have to know the Bible. How many are understanding that? So you have a responsibility to learn the Bible. 
Now here's the great tragedy in North America. They've done surveys. George Barn has done surveys about Christians and he says only 10% of people who identify as Christians are daily Bible readers. 10%. What does that tell me? It tells me that the majority of people are being more influenced by what the culture is saying than what the Bible is saying. So I would say 90% of Christians are developing a cultural worldview. While 10% are sitting over here looking at life through a different lens. Because when you're reading the scriptures and you're praying and you're asking God to reveal himself to you through scripture, you're beginning to see life through the eyes of God. You're seeing life through that lens. It's a different lens. And all of a sudden, when you're listening to preaching, when you're in the scriptures all the time, you're going, yep, that's right. Or, that's nonsense. That's not what the scriptures are teaching. There may be quoting a scripture, but it's not the context. It's not what it's saying. It's not what it means. That's what these guys are making it say. And Christians actually read into their Bibles what they want to believe rather than let the Bible speak to us. And even when it challenges us and disciplines us, we need that to happen in our lives because we want to see it from God's perspective. So that, here's the challenge. We're starting a brand new year. You know, I, I dug out a Bible I've owned for a long time. I, I have lots of Bibles. I've never looked at this one. It's a different translation. And every year when I start my Bible reading, I try to pick a new translation. Why? Because I want to, you know, I've read the Bible a lot. I mean, a lot, a lot, a lot. So it's, for me, I want to see a different translation. Sometimes it's said a little differently, and I go, wow, I didn't see that before. You know, I'm seeing it a little differently, and then I check and make sure it's, you know. And so I'm, I took a different translation this year. And I'm saying to myself, I read the back cover. It says, if you will read the Bible 15 minutes a day, you can read the entire Bible in a year. 15 minutes. I'm going, that's pretty impressive. 15 minutes. So it tells me, you know, everybody says, well, I'm really busy, Pastor. I'm going, yeah. But if you really want to know God, if you want to see the world through the right lens, if you want to start walking with God and doing the right thing and not have God to discipline you because you're doing things that are actually self-destructive and it's affecting other people in a negative way, then you maybe need to spend time every day with God. What a way to start the day. You know, I was up this morning, I was reading things. I mean, I got so blessed. I, I have a journal. I actually journal my prayers. I journal my meditation. I journal what I'm reading. There's thoughts that are coming to me. I'm writing them down because I know I'm not that smart to remember it all. And at the moment, it was really good. But if I try to pull it back up, pretty soon I'm distracted with something else. So then I can go back to my journal. I go, oh yeah, remember that? That was awesome. God showed that to me there. I'm encouraging, I'm challenging you. You want to know what God says. So when all of these voices are coming at you, you go, that's nonsense. I'm not even getting excited. It doesn't even choke me up. It doesn't tick me off. It doesn't do anything. Because I go, that's oh, God's world. Those guys are so out to lunch. They're, they're prognosticating terrible things. And I'm going, no, they're making people feel fearful and upset. I don't think that's what God has in mind at all. So, but you see, I feel comfortable because I'm in the Bible all the time but I don't just spend 15 minutes a day. I spend a lot of time. So I'm, I'm very comfortable. When people are saying things, I'm going, that's nonsense. And I can easily negate it. Follow what I'm saying? Number two, the significance of the articles of the temple as the focus of the message. I thought, I thought that was very fascinating. Look what it says in verse 16. Then I said to the priests and all these people, 
This is what the Lord says. Do not listen to the prophets who say, very soon now the articles from the Lord's house will be brought back from Babylon. They're prophesying lies to you. Uh, do not listen to them. Serve the king of Babylon, you'll live. Why should the city become a ruin? You can see already how traitorous this sounds, you know. Uh, the articles, why, why were these articles so significant? What's the significance of them? Uh, Tremper Longman says their significance, not because of their value as precious metal, but because of their symbolic significance. They represent the presence of God, the presence of Yahweh, especially because Israelite religion was anaconic. What do you mean? Without image. You know, isn't that amazing? Uh, when the Roman soldiers came to, they, when they were trying to figure out, like, what were the Jews worshiping? They went in and looked inside the ark, and it was empty. There was nothing there. They were disappointed. They said, what does the God of Israel look like? So the point is simply this. God is a spirit. So the Israelites were not allowed to make God in a graven image. That would be violating the first commandment. Isn't that true? How many know that's true? That's very powerful. So what we need to understand is that these uh, articles basically represented God's presence. They were symbolic representation. And here's the meaning. In ancient, ancient Near Eastern thinking, theological thinking, the Babylonian king's ability to take these objects would have said to people, either God is collaborating with this king or he's being defeated by this king. How many know Nebuchadnezzar's not defeating God? That's not happening. So what is God doing? He must be collaborating with them. And I'm gonna say this to us. There's other stories in the Old Testament. Remember when uh, Israel was fighting with the Philistines and they thought they'd bring the Ark of the Covenant to that battle, but they were, they were not in right relationship to God and the Philistines captured the Ark. Remember that story? What was God doing? God was using the Philistines to discipline his people. But the Philistines were pretty proud now. They felt, hey, our gods just defeated the Israelite God. So they brought the Ark of the Covenant, which represents God's presence. They put it in the temple of Dagon, their God. Well, you know what happened? They had an earthquake, and poor old Dagon fell down. And uh, so they put him back up. And the next day was another tremor, and when he fell down this time, he broke off his head, his arms, you know, things were falling apart, you know. And, and then eventually the cities, they started having plagues in the city. So the Philistines, they had five city states. So they said, hey, listen, this must be a problem. They just moved the ark to another city. Moment they did that, the people here got okay. These people now were under a plague. They kept moving it. Pretty soon the Philistines got together and said, I don't know about you, but let's just get rid of this thing. Right? Remember that story? And then they thought, well, maybe it's just coincidence. Maybe we just all caught these plagues. So they, then they, they put it on a cart, and they got two cows that had little babies, and they were, you know, wanting to milk their little babies, and they put it there, and they thought, hey, if this is really, you know, that, that, that God is that strong, the cows will do something unnatural. They'll take the cart right to the Israelites. That's exactly what happened. What's the point of these stories? It's to explain something to us. God doesn't get defeated by human beings. God collaborates with certain people to deal and do certain things. And in this story, God is using people to discipline other people. Nations are gonna be disciplined. And God has done this throughout history. How many know nations rise, nations fall, nations rise again? What's God doing? He's disciplining that nation. He's humbling them. He's trying to set them on the right foundation. We need to understand that. But that's also true in our personal lives. Then we read here, you know, Jeremiah's um, 
Well, by saying that the articles would be returned, what, what Longman is, 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 is stating, he's saying, these prophets were giving false hope that the situation with Babylon would get better and not worsen. Such ideas would hinder any possibility of sincere repentance that would lead to the survival of Judah. You know, when God's disciplining you, he's looking for repentance. That's what he's looking for. And that needs to happen in our lives if we're gonna really change. So, number three, Jeremiah's message of challenge, concern, and comfort. He says, if, if they are prophets, have the word of God, let them plead with the Lord Almighty that the articles now still remaining in the house of the Lord and in the palace of the king of Judah and Jerusalem not be taken to Babylon. For this is what the Lord Almighty says about the pillars, the bronze sea, the movable stands, and the other articles that are left in the city, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, did not take them away when he carried Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, along with all the nobles of Judah and Jerusalem. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says about the things that are left in the house of the Lord, and then the palace of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem. They will be taken to Babylon. And there they will remain until the day I come for them, declares the Lord. Here's a word of hope. And then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. So what is God saying to us? He wants us to know that once he's disciplined us, he will restore us. How many think that's beautiful? So, you know, we look at God's correction as a negative. I think we need to start saying, no, God corrects us. It's a positive. He wants to restore us. Now, can we avoid some of the pain? Yes, by not rebelling in the first place. How about that? Novel thought, just do the right thing, you know? They all, want, we, they all wanted to believe that all would be well, but Jeremiah knows that only by responding in obedience to God's word of correction and discipline will transformation and blessing be theirs as a people. You know, there is a time for discipline and correction, but there's also a time for renewal and restoration. When we realize that God is sovereign over the nations and all are accountable to him, we can utilize the greatest tool at our disposal as believers in relationship to those who are in authority over us. Prayer. I don't think we realize how powerful prayer is. I was just reading this morning, Abraham was praying for Sodom and, he, and he's negotiating with God to spare the city for 10 righteous people. There wasn't even 10 righteous people. But then the Bible says God sent two angels and rescued his nephew, who I'm sure Abraham was concerned about. Abraham's prayer, I believe, affected Lot's rescue. Actually, this translation I'm reading said it that way. I said, wow, that's beautiful. Isn't that amazing that our prayers actually bring about the rescue of other people? It's powerful stuff. But you know, I think some of the best examples of how we ought to live in a politically unstable time, I think are found actually in the captivity itself in Babylon. And what we see there are people like Daniel and his friends. And what are they doing? They're working within the system. They're captives. It's an oppressive ruler. Nebuchadnezzar is a tyrant. He's got anger management issues. He probably needed about 10 courses. I mean, because he's a total autocrat and he's losing his cool all the time. You know, so how does Daniel and his friends handle the pressure of the world in which they were living in? First of all, you know, he's, he, you know, he's humble. He negotiates with the people that are over him. You know, chapter one, beautiful story. He says to the guys, listen, you know, we want to change our diet. They're, eat they're eating the diet of the king. And he says, I don't want to eat that diet. It's a violation of kosher foods, really in the mind of Daniel. The guy says, listen, if I feed you guys what you want and you look worse than the guys that are eating the king's food, I'm dead. 
Oh, listen, Daniel says, just do a 10-day test. Let us just eat vegetables and see what happens. And the guy says, okay, we'll try it for 10 days. Asked real nice. And then 10 days later, as he looked at these guys, they looked great. He said, okay, we'll keep doing it. Then you get to chapter two. What's happening? Nebuchadnezzar has a crazy dream. He's really upset. He knows it's got some sort of a meaning. It's terrified him. So he calls the wise men and he says, hey, I've had this terrible dream. Give me the interpretation. So what did they say? Tell us the dream. They said, no way. If the, I, I don't trust you guys. You might tell me anything that it means something. And it doesn't. He says, you tell me what the dream is and then give me the interpretation and I'll believe you. And if you can't do that, I'll kill you. I tell you, Nebuchadnezzar is not a nice guy to work for. Right? Well, Daniel wasn't there that day and he found out that they were all going to be arrested and you know, executed. And he goes, oh, just give us a day. We'll figure this out. And so he goes to the Lord in prayer. God tells him what the dream is. He comes into the king. What am I saying this story? Because I think as Christians, we should be the people that are actually helping people work through their issues. Daniel comes up, he says, King, this is the dream. And he gives the interpretation. Now you say, well, that was terrible that God did all of this this way. No, because it's setting Daniel up now to be recognized by the king as someone that he can look to. Now we get the next chapter. Good old Nebuchadnezzar, what happens? He has another bad dream. This time he decides to tell Daniel because he trusts him, right? Daniel, when he hears the dream, he's terrified because you know what the dream is? God is gonna humble the king. Now, how many know Nebuchadnezzar is probably not gonna like this message? So how do you tell someone that God's about to knock them off their block, you know? And this person could take your head off for telling them that. So Daniel's listening to this dream and his, the Bible says, and he became afraid. And Nebuchadnezzar could see in his countenance, he says, this is really bothering you. He said, listen, king, talk about diplomatic. May this happen to your enemies. <laughs> right? You know, this is what God is showing you. You're the king. You're this big tree. You're over all these peoples. God gave this to you. It's so neat. But then God, because of your pride, is going to humble you and cut you off at the stump. But then he will restore you again, O king. King goes, oh, I don't know if I like this dream, you know. Anyways, a year later, he's walking along one of the, which we now know as one of the seven great wonders of the world. He goes, look at those great walls I made, the Babylonian gardens, one of the greatest. Look what I've done. The next thing you know, he's a babbling idiot. He's lost his mind. He's insane. He's in the backyard. He's eating grass with the animals. God humbled him in a day. Folks, we need to know something. Whose world is this? God's world. Who elevates people? God does. Who brings down people? God does. If we don't walk in humility, God will bring us down. That's true for leaders, in politics, in the church, in the community, in business, in families. We need to hear this. This is a message not just, oh, how do I get along with people I don't like that are over me? Yeah, it's part of it. But look how humble Daniel and his friends were. Now, did they ever stand up to Nebuchadnezzar? Oh, yeah. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were told to bow down and worship this image. They said, listen, O king, you know, there's a lot of things we're really happy to do. We're happy to serve you, but to worship other than our God, we cannot do. What was Nebuchadnezzar's mild response? No, it wasn't mild. It was a rage. Crank that oven up. Chuck these guys in the oven. Destroy them. What's the next scene? 
Nebuchadnezzar comes flying out of his throne seat and looks and he goes, man, we threw three guys in, four guys are walking around, bring them out. God delivered them. Then you move to the next kingdom, the Persians. Daniel's still living. You know, 70 years later, he lived to be an old guy. And the, everybody was jealous of Daniel. They figured a law. The only way to get Daniel was to somehow get him to stop praying. That seemed to be the key to Daniel's life. So they made a law for 30 days. Nobody could appeal to anybody but the king of Persia, not even to their gods. So what does Daniel do? He goes, no, that's my relationship with God. Opens the window, prays as usual, gets thrown in the lion's den. Guess what happens? God delivers them. See, we have to decide what's the area we need to stand. You know, getting upset because our way of life is changing is one thing. Getting uptight, or not getting uptight, but just doing the right thing when our faith is being challenged is a different ballgame. Figure out what hill you have to die on. I think that's important. Yet these examples are people who were working within the established structure that God allowed to be put over them. And I think they're great models for us today. You know the ultimate model is Jesus himself. How did he deal with Roman oppression? Why wasn't Jesus a zealot? Because he knew that wasn't the biggest problem in the kingdom. He knew that the real issue was actually people were bound in sin, not oppressed by political issues. Those leaders come and go. But probably the greatest bondage that you and I can are gonna have to deal with is our own sinfulness. And Jesus came to deal with the sin question. And it's the same thing that's happening today. Maybe we have to take a look at ourselves and say, is it really the sin question that needs to be addressed in my life? More so than the political question. So we're gonna stand as we close this morning. Maybe we're here today, we say, wow, you know what? I need help changing my attitude towards the leaders that God's put over me. Anybody here that's probably, you need a little help with that? Anybody need help with that? Some of you? Okay. How about, how many say, you know what, I think the bigger issue in my life is God wants to deal with the stuff in my life. Make, let's make it more personal. And what I'm trying to challenge us this morning is if we don't surrender to God's work of grace in our life, God will discipline us. And if we keep resisting, it's gonna get more painful. And why is he doing that? Because he doesn't like us? No, he loves us. But he'll bring you down just like he did Nebuchadnezzar. Because eventually Nebuchadnezzar went back to the throne. But he had a whole new attitude. He says, now I know there's a God in heaven. <laughs> now I know, you know who put me here. It's not me. It was the God in heaven who put me here. Wasn't that amazing testimony? See, God wants to change our lives to make us more like him. I think that's powerful. So with just every head bowed this morning, maybe there's some of you here today who say, you know what? I think there's a bigger issue than, than my, my attitude towards the politicians. Maybe the bigger issue is an issue in my own soul with sin. Maybe you're here today and say, you know what? I need to surrender. You could be a believer or not a believer. It doesn't matter to me. But there's an issue in my life that I need to surrender to God. And if that's you today, just raise your hand. I'm gonna pray right now for you. Yeah, that's great. Many people. That's great. Beautiful. A lot of people are responding this morning. Let's just bring these things to God. Can you, well, let's just take whatever it is in our life. Say, Lord, I give you this struggle. I give you this issue in my soul that I'm battling. I give it to you today. I pray for your divine assistance. I pray for your spirit to give me the strength to resist, to say no, and to be an overcomer. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave today.